Welcome to For the Love of Books, a podcast by North Lancashire Libraries. Hi everyone, welcome back to the North Lancashire Libraries podcast for the love of books. My name is Chris Wilson, the e-services librarian, and today I am joined by two very special guests who are members of the Airdrie Astronomical Association, and we've got William Tennant and the chair of the, of the, the group, Richard Shaw, as well. So welcome guys to the podcast. Thank you for Hi. coming along. Good to be here. Fantastic. And for, for our listeners for who may not know that we've got an observatory in one of our libraries, I'll give you a little kind of quick background on it. There's been an observatory in the Airdrie Library since 1895, which is an unbelievable amount of time to have such a fantastic facility available in the library. And it moved to its current location in 1925. And the Airdrie Astronomical Association, I believe, has been kind of running the observatory for us since around about uh, 2010, I think it is, roughly about that. That's correct, yeah. Um, and over the years, there has been some very famous visitors to the observatory as well, which includes three Apollo astronauts, which is very, very, very exciting stuff as well. So it's a, it's a great um, a, a little gem that is a part of our library service. And these guys that are with me in the podcast today are the kind of people who know probably most about it and certainly know more about astronomy than I do. So we'll, we'll kind of quiz them on some interesting things to do with the observatory and astronomy in, in general as well and see what we come up with. So, so, so the last year, guys, it's probably been quite a, a difficult and frustrating year for you uh, not being able to use the observatory quite like you would have liked to have prior to COVID, I would guess. Yeah, most most certainly. Um, it's been very very challenging for the for the group, uh, especially when we've got a lot of um, older members um, who are who are very keen not to uh, not to circulate in, in society when when we've got this the, the COVID running about. Yeah. Um, but we've managed to get uh, a few Zoom meetings in, uh, and we're we're started back up last week uh, with with some Zoom meetings. A lot of the uh, the members weren't too keen to meet back up uh, in, in uh, Wellwine Church that we meet in, uh, which is obviously just next to the library. Mm. Um, and sometimes we can go over from there uh, into the observatory at night. Um, but obviously, for the last year and a half, that's that's not happened. Uh, so it's been quite quite a quite a challenge there. Yeah. And- it's, it's, a, it's a shame really that that's been the case because obviously it has been something that has been getting well used by yourselves in the, in the group there and, and not to be able to kind of carry that on has is, been is, is, you know, a real shame for, for us and for you guys. So how how has things been progressing with getting the observatory up and running to the point where we can kind of get back to kind of what it was like beforehand? Yeah, well, well for, the, for, the, for the few meetings uh, and went over all the the risk assessments that we need to do and all the method statements and 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 methods of working and we've got something in place unfortunately we can't actually take people up to the observatory in person uh, because access would be would be too difficult with all the touch points um, obviously it's it's high up in the library so we've got a, a, a large number of stairs to go up um, and the space in the observatory is limited for the social distancing but uh, what we're what we're managing managed to 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 come up with is uh, a remote viewing scope, um, which we're hoping to get set up uh, starting on Tuesday evening. Uh, that's uh, Tuesday the 30th, I think. 
30th of November. And we uh, will do a wee talk uh, about the history of the observatory and answer any questions um, about uh, astronomy in general to anyone that, that, that comes along. Uh, what we would say, though, is if anyone wants to come along, if they could email uh, uh, through the usual channels and uh, just to let us know that, that they're coming along. We will take people that will turn up, um, but uh, you may have to wait uh, to get in. Um, we're hoping to do an hour, a session, an hour session and uh, it'll be three 20-minute talks uh, uh, within that hour. Um, so if you come along, you might have to wait about 10, 15 minutes to get into the next, uh, the next session that we'll be running. And if it's clear and we manage to get all the technical difficulties ironed out through the telescope, um, you'll be able to see um, uh, what's in the sky uh, from the actual observatory live, um, weather permitting, obviously. Technology permitting as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, as as you can briefly mention there, uh, William, um, the you you guys did have previously meetings in the church next next door, um, and those were kind of running quite regularly, weren't they, beforehand? And you got some kind of guest speakers and things like that that come along to your meetings occasionally, don't you? We've had uh, actually we've had quite a a, um, uh, a lot of quite distinguished guest speakers uh, mm -hmm. from all parts of the world. Um, we uh, recently, since we restarted, we've relied on our own membership to provide the meetings, but the one yeah. on uh, the, 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 the one after next is going to be from a chap who's been all over the place. He's been to Antarctica. Uh, wow. he, apparently he was from Galloway. So he's kind of <laughs> local but travelled. Um, yeah. he, he's going to be speaking about um, American star parties, whatever American star parties are. Um, mm -hmm. I imagine a bit like ours, except in America. But we have had, uh, as you say, three Apollo astronauts. You can uh, climb the stairs and stand at the spot where Charlie Duke autographed his, his uh, image on the wall. Um, yeah. People from Airdrie can actually stand where a man who stood on the moon stood, without yeah. standing on the moon. Um, we've put out an invitation to the, the, the new um, Royal um, Astronomer, the Scottish Astronomer Royal, um, a lady called Professor Catherine Hamans. She hasn't replied yet, but I think she's probably quite busy. Um, <laughs> she's she's, um, she's um, the successor to a previous Astronomer Royal who uh, unfortunately passed away. Um, he was one of the speakers we had, and so we, we get pe people come in from all over the place talking about all sorts of, of uh, obviously astronomy-related subjects. Um, and I will be quite honest, I've never heard a bad presentation. Uh, some are more interesting than others because that's the nature of anything, but um, some of them have been really, really high quality. And occasionally we get the, uh, well, not quite pyrotechnics, because I don't want to scare them, we think we're going to blow up the building. But, um, <laughs> Um, actual demonstrations of things that um, make the science quite interesting. Uh, so yes, we've had plenty of uh, famous speakers, and we hope to have plenty more. Brilliant. And and as as you were saying as well, it's obviously since COVID that you've kind of moved that on a sort of digital platform now. So it's, you're using Zoom, I think. Is that is that right to kind of do yes. some of these meetings now? Yes. Yeah, um, and uh, are you still getting guest speakers to do that, or, or, or well, is that you say just the, the one on the 17th of December will be the first of our guest speakers in, in this series. Um, but an interesting comment somebody made to me was, 
Um, see the people that were wanting in as guest speakers, they do it by Zoom anyway. Some of them are university lectures, and that's how they operate their professional lives. Yeah. So shouldn't it be a terrible hardship for them to come to our Zoom meetings and, and do what they do? So um, it's really the, the difficult part is um, the, the hard work part is finding somebody to come and do talks um, because yeah. people are busy and, and, and they've got other things to do. Uh, and we don't get out enough in the world to find out where they all are. So we're kind of relying on um, our own members to either come and do the talks themselves or to say, I heard this very interesting talk from so-and-so, maybe you can contact them. Um, yeah. So word of mouth um, matters a great deal in that respect. So we'll be getting more uh, external speakers simply because we can. Uh, and yeah. nowadays it should be easy. We might even be able to get people who come on um, from uh, foreign universities from their own countries, because there's no technological reason why they can't come and speak to yeah, you. Yeah. In the middle of the night in, in Australia or wherever they happen to be. Yeah, that is the thing. That is, that is one of the great things about the, kind of using sort of Zoom meetings and things like that sort of stuff to do these things. It, it does widen the scope of people who can potentially get involved and and you can, you can possibly get people from further afield who you would never necessarily have been able to get or, or would be been unavailable that might kind of be able to say, yeah, I can do that and kind of get involved with it with a kind of digital meeting. So mm-hmm. it does kind of open up opportunities as well, So which is good. There. Yeah, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, uh, when we do have uh, guest speakers along uh, on the Friday night, uh, we always we always uh, ask if they'd like to go up and see the observatory uh, and give them a wee tour of it. And uh, their travel arrangements permitting, uh, they're always very keen to go up, and, go up and have a look around it. Uh, and they all mention how uh, what a great asset it is, and what what a great um, what a great uh, uh, asset um, uh, North Lancashire have got um, for for outreach uh, to yeah. people, uh, and and not just in astronomy, but in science in general, uh, and engineering, which we which we also cover at the observatory um, because of the the optics of the of the telescope and the actual engineering of it as well, um, which a lot of people find find quite interesting, other than the astronomy, uh, which is quite unusual. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a it's a it's a brilliant little hidden gem uh, that we have. Um, and from from the kind of library point of view, it's amazing how many people come in and and you, when you mention it to them that they don't realise it's there and and. It's great to kind of raise awareness that there is such a fantastic facility in, in Airdrie and in North Lanarkshire, which is brilliant. So next up, we're going to kind of try and I'm going to try and pretend to know a little bit about astronomy. Ah. <laughs> now, William did help me out a little bit with this part uh, by sending me some topic headers for, for uh, potential things to kind of talk about. And the first thing we're going to touch on is the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which... Um, I had to Google the acronym that you sent along for me to find that out. Um, the astronomy world has been quite a bit excited about the forthcoming launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is happening next month in December. Um, and um, I believe it's quite a, a, a kind of exciting time for, for the astronomy world for that to go up into space, isn't it, William? Yeah, it's um, been quite a uh, quite a journey for the for it uh, i think it was conceived uh, oh, in the 90s if if not before then uh and they've been working on it for all this time um a lot of money uh, and a lot of delays um but they're they're almost ready to go 
and uh, I'm not sure if it was in the news too much, but uh, they were loading it onto the uh, onto the spacecraft and a a bracket failed, and it got a bit of a jolt. Um, so it was it was delayed even further. Uh, it was supposed to be launching in the 18th, but they had to move it to the 22nd to check everything out. So um, fingers crossed and everything else crossed uh, that it all uh, that it all go up successfully, um, and it will all be deployed. Um, as I said, it's a lot of money uh, to put in all your eggs in one basket, but uh, the scientists are keen to to see what it all what it all produce. Maybe Richard can can highlight a wee bit of what it's destined to do. Well. Quite apart from the, the technical and and uh, mechanical and, and engineering challenges, which have been immense, because there's something like 340 potential failure points in its deployment, um, it's going to be doing something that we've never been able to do before. Um, it's the replacement, essentially, for the Hubble Space Telescope. As right, William okay. said, it was, it, was, uh, it was conceived in, the, in actually in the 1990s, but the, the original proposal uh, went in, and I think it was 1995, with a view to launching it in 2007. It has been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed, and the costs have gone up and up and up and up. It's costing $9.8 billion, so thank you very much to the American taxpayer. Uh, <laughs> but we've been patient about it, but it, it's, it's what it's going to be able to see because um, not only is it larger than uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, it's able to see light in the infrared. The infrared light from uh, stars doesn't really reach the surface of the Earth because of the atmosphere. Um, and the Hubble Space Telescope doesn't have the instruments to observe in the infrared. But the infrared is where you'll see all sorts of things that we've never been able to see before, uh, including, hopefully, we'll be able to see um, the earliest galaxies um, when they were first formed. 13 point something billion years ago, um, potentially. We'll also, be able to, we'll also be able to examine the atmospheres of um, exoplanets as those exoplanets pass across the front of their parent stars. We're hoping that we'll be able to detect enough of the starlight that will be able to tell us what the chemistry of the atmospheres of those exoplanets is, um, which is, I think, quite astonishing because exoplanets were um, science fiction 10 years ago. And, and now they're, they're kind of ordinary. Um, we also hope they, 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 to see um, stars being formed inside dust clouds because infrared light passes through the dust clouds. The ordinary light doesn't. So we're hoping to see um, very young stars being formed or even stars that are not yet stars being formed in these dust clouds yeah. and sorts of things like that. And the point is that whenever we've set up um, new instruments to go and look at things, we've found things we didn't expect to see. Uh, yeah. So there are things that we hope we're going to see, but we've no idea what they are. <laughs> so uh, so many things that are, that are potentially um, just going to appear that we didn't expect uh, and we didn't predict. So it's going to really make a big change to our understanding of the universe and how it formed and how it's operating at the moment. And that's yeah. just a fraction of what it will be able to do. Fantastic. I mean, I, I, I mean, being someone who doesn't know much about astronomy myself, I, I didn't realise it was such a long project that, that has been grown for, for so quite so long. That, that's quite amazing. And I did, and I did hear about the, the, the delay um, that's kind of happened recently then about the kind of, um, and it just, it just said an incident on the, on the, on the website that I found. So it's interesting to hear that it's, it's a bracket that failed on it. So there you go. And, uh, and I'm sure after all this time, they won't mind kind of waiting just another few days to, to hopefully kind of get it sorted and up in, in, in the, into space. So 
Um, the, the other exciting thing that I saw recently in the news, um, which was it sounded all very a bit Hollywoody for me to be to be kind of seeing, was the NASA space start mission, which sounds absolutely amazing, um, and uh, which is basically that they're, they're planning on launching a spacecraft into space. And they're actually going to, it's basically the first asteroid defence system mission uh, where they're going to basically crash it into a, an asteroid to hopefully knock it off course and um, in case of obviously anything like that coming close to Earth. So have you guys heard any more about that? Like you can have shared a bit more kind of professional information about it than my explanation. Yeah, the um, it's, a, it's a really interesting mission. Uh, and it's something that, that you see occasionally um, in the news um, regarding asteroids. Um, in the astronomy uh, circles, uh, a, a number of years ago, um, probably in the, the 70s and 80s, asteroids were seen as um, a bit of a, a nuisance um, because there were small points of light that were whizzing about the, the sky that, that nobody could really be bothered about. Um, but over the years, um, they were more and more discovered. So somebody thought, well, hang on a minute, all these things are, are fizzling about all round about us in various sizes. What one? What? What's the chances of one of them hitting us? Um, because we get loads of um, uh, meteorites um, hitting the Earth every day. Um, very, very small grains of dust. That's the shooting stars that you can see in the sky at night if you're if you're fortunate to go out. And uh, you see occasionally, uh, I think the last major one was in Russia, uh, and you've seen all the damage that that did when it exploded over. Uh, uh, and nowadays we have all these uh, webcams and dash cams, and these pick all the all these surprise um, uh, happenings, uh, and and can can show people what they're actually like. Um, so with that in mind. Uh, the science community over the years have thought, well, if we find one and it's heading straight to the Earth, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to save mankind? Um, so this has uh, been a few years in the making, and it's testing out how uh, we might be able to nudge an asteroid um, and redirect it away from the Earth. Um, so we'll be sending up the probe and it'll launch uh, a small uh, projectile and it'll crash into not the asteroid, but a moon of the asteroid. All right. Because uh, the asteroid it's going to is called a. Now I've written that down somewhere because I couldn't quite remember it. It's called Didymos. And uh, the small moon around the asteroid is called Diamorphos and it's actually going to hit um, Diamorphos and they're going to measure uh, the orbit of Diamorphos and see if it changes after it's been hit um, so that they can uh, um, find out if it is a possibility of changing the direction of an asteroid. Now Didymos, the main asteroid, is 390 metres in diameter. And Diamorphos, uh, the smaller moon of it, is 85 metres thereabouts in diameter. So it's quite small uh, by astronomical standards. Um, if Didymos hit the Earth, 
it would be probably quite a, a country destroying event. Wow. Uh, if Diamorphus hit, it probably wouldn't be that too bad, um, depending on where it hit and if it breaks up. Um, the thing about asteroids is that there's two main kinds. There's very rocky ones and there's very uh, metallic ones, which contain a lot of metal. Mm-hmm. And the metal ones present the most danger to the Earth because uh, they tend not to break up. They tend to be more solid. And as they come mm-hmm. in and heat up, they melt. Uh, whereas um, rocky asteroids or, or meteorites tend to break up uh, and disperse uh, quite easily. So uh, fortunately for, for us, um, metallic asteroids only make up about 20% of all asteroids. Um, so uh, the probability of, uh, of meeting one of them is, is a lot less. Um, and each asteroid is different. And that's what we've found. There's been a few missions out to, to asteroids uh, and we're learning more and more about them. Uh, they are basically from the early uh, time of the of the solar system formation. So they're leftover bits from the, okay. from the primordial, uh, primordial uh, solar system. So scientists are very keen to find out um, a lot about them. Um, so we've had uh, a couple of um, sample return missions from asteroids, which are coming back. The Japanese have done a lot in this to try and cat- uh, characterize what the asteroids are like. Uh, so there's been a couple of uh, American missions as well, uh, taking pictures and uh, and getting some samples back as well. Very small amounts of samples, must admit. And the spacecraft just touched down, grab a couple, and, and float away again, uh, and then hopefully bring that back back to back to Earth. So they are due to arrive in the next two or three years. Uh, I think the, the Japanese one came back uh, six months ago or, or something like that. So they got the results back from that. Um, so the, the the DART mission you're talking about, uh, that's mm-hmm. an uh, an acronym for Double Asteroid Redirect Test Mission. Right, so that's okay. what the DART, that DART stands for. Uh, and on board, there is a small cube satellite, which has been provided by the Italian Space Agency. And what it's going to do is just before the impact, it will be let loose and it will actually f- uh, photograph the impact and what happens after the impact. Um, mm. CubeSats are uh, small satellites. Um, you've probably seen them on the television uh, and in the news. And they allow companies to have a satellite um, for a very low cost. They're about um, 200 millimeters square, something like that. Uh, and they can be launched in and they have their own propulsion system and own me cameras or sensors or whatever. They don't last very long. They don't have much propulsion, if any. Um, but they are very, very low cost. Uh, and the space agencies have been using these a lot uh, on missions. Um, as ride-alongs to the main mission that they can deploy, right. uh, sort of like a, a drone, if you like, yeah, a small drone that can go out and see things from a from a different different perspective. Um, so the mission is very very interesting, and uh, it's going to be followed up in 2024 by a European Space Agency mission uh, called Hera, which okay. will visit the same asteroid again. 
and see um, what the impact was like on the small moon Diamorphos uh, and check it um, to see what's happened two years after the impact. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of effort going into this um, at the moment. Um, so uh, it's good to know that we're, we're in safe hands and <laughs> we're working towards a solution. Um, the interplanetary, uh, sorry, the Planetary Society based in America, they're very, uh, they've been pushing a lot for this because uh, they consider it's not a case of if it will happen, it's a case of when it will happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, the United Nations have actually got uh, designated a day, uh, the 30th of June, which is International Asteroid Day. Uh, <laughs> and every year there's a series of events, month-long events, um, that uh, people can uh, view uh, experts talking about it and uh, they raise the profile of this uh, throughout the world uh, to see what people are people are working on. So it's all it's all very good, and certainly keep uh, keep your eyes on the uh, on the news for it to see how it, how it performs because the pictures will be, I think, quite spectacular when they come back. Yeah, I mean, it does. It certainly sounds like a fun, a fascinating mission um, for us to be kind of doing. And into some perspective, Chris, um, yeah. just on to uh, to what William said, if you want to see. What asteroids can do in terms of damage because the point where we made is it's a matter of time it will certainly happen yeah. um if you if you um find out about the extinction of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago that was yeah. probably an asteroid um, and not even a particularly large one it was about the size of a large mountain um the size of something like everest and yeah. it devastated life across the whole planet and one arriving today would do exactly the same the same thing yeah the is avoid that yeah and i mean obviously there is there is no kind of way of kind of defense against that at well, the moment the, the, the point, this is the defense because if yeah. you find it early enough you only need to nudge it a tiny amount when it's far away for it to miss us because we're, we're actually a very small target in this yeah that's um, the thing so i mean when i come talking about space like we obviously earth seems such a big thing but in terms of the space well it is pretty much a drop in the ocean so yeah. Uh, uh, it's like a, a kind of one in a million shot. Yeah, well, to, to put it in, uh, to give you an idea of the, the, the distances involved, um, the Moon is about 480,000 kilometres from Earth. Uh, the Didymos uh, asteroid um, that the DART mission is going to is currently 485 million kilometres away. Okay. Uh, so that's, uh, what, about 110 10 times, uh, no, 100 times more, 100 times further away. And at the closest, uh, when the actual impact happens, I think it's happening next year, uh, the asteroid will be 11 million kilometres uh, from Earth. And that's deemed as quite close. Right. Um, so it's actually um, five, six times uh, further away than the moon is. Uh, so that's a that's what um, uh, all the space agencies deem as a, a close asteroid. Um, they have managed to map all the orbits of all the the ones that are close to the Earth down to, I think it's one metre in diameter. Um, and they have a few. Uh, there's actually a website that you can go into and you can see um, the close, uh, how close they'll get, and they work out their orbits and they, uh, and they see how close they'll get to the Earth and they can predict the orbit get into the future uh, to see if it's going to, if it does pose a threat. Uh, and there, there is a couple that 
uh, I think it was in the news recently that there was one uh, Apophis uh, asteroid and it was confirmed uh, that it wouldn't hit the Earth for the next uh, 300 years. So uh, sure. that was uh, sort of managed to... The, the issue that we have is every time they come near the Earth, the Earth and the Moon interfere with their orbit. So yeah. that that's... The, 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 nothing in the, the, the solar system is, is the same all the time. You know, things are moving um, and uh, the outer planets affect... Uh, everything else that's going on round about. Um, so um, it, it, they can only predict so far into the future. But within the next two, three hundred years, they've, they've not found anything that would be of a, a, a great worry at the moment. Um, but obviously, we've got to think of long term in, into the future, just in yeah. case. Yeah, it's the, it's, I mean, the like the, the, the space telescope thing, it, take, it takes a long time for these things to be developed and and kind of perfect, perfected and kind of ready to kind of go out and things. So yeah, yeah, but so that's yeah. That's the the, the dark mission is actually it's what they're terming a the term as a test mission as well because they put a lot of new technologies onto it. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I find interesting about it is the the ion engine that they use on them. Okay. Uh, which sounds very sci-fi, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is uh, they've, this is a now a, uh, they're trying out a, an ion engine that is three times the power of the previous ion engines uh, that they've used in space, um, most of which have went to the asteroids. Uh, and an ion engine is a very, very efficient engine, um, but unfortunately, it's not very strong. <laughs> But it, uh, but it lasts a long time. So because space missions are so long, uh, they can start up the en engine and run it continually. Uh, and the small uh, the small thrust that it gives over a long period of time means that it can change the spacecraft's velocity uh, quite a lot. Uh, an ion engine, the ones that were uh, um, launched initially, they've got the same thrust as you holding a piece of paper in your hand. So uh, that's the that's the force that they, they would they would they would generate, um, and the new one that's going out is three times that. So it's three sheets of paper <laughs> in your hand. Um, but as I said, they're very efficient. They're very fuel efficient, uh, and they work by uh, sending a gas out um, that's that's been electrostatically charged, uh, and between two um, electric plates, and then it throws it out. Uh, at a very high velocity, and that creates that creates the thrust. Um, so they can take a small amount of fuel that lasts a long time, um, and it's good for doing missions that last a long time that you want to yeah. want to fly about in, but not good for getting anywhere fast, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we need to be patient. We need to be patient for for them to get there. So yeah, fantastic. So we'll, we'll kind of move on to our next little part of the the podcast, which is going to be basically about the the winter sky. So obviously we have reached winter, um, which brings about dark nights and. They, they they polarize a lot of people. Some people like the dark nights, some people hate them. But I guess for astronomers, the, the dark nights must be quite a good thing um, to have. And must help you guys get longer time to kind of check out things in the sky and things. Yeah, during during the summer uh, in Scotland, um, because it never quite gets dark at night uh, during the summer. Um, and if you get to midsummer, you can actually still read your newspaper at midnight, um, especially the further north you go. <laughs> 
and the easier that is to do. But for astronomy, that's pretty hopeless. I'm quite lucky because I'm, I'm, I'm one of my um, specialties, if that's the word, is solar astronomy. So that's better in the summer. Gets you out in the sun. Um, <laughs> but, and, and it's not so good in the winter. But the winter, um, the, the only downside of the uh, of the winter is if it's clear enough to see things, it's also cold. So make sure yeah. you wrap up well if you're going to do it. Um, but there's hundreds of things to see. Absolutely hundreds of things to see. Um, and we'll be... Um, well, personally, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the things that, uh, that are coming along. Um, one of the things that uh, we always see when winter arrives, uh, and it, it's when I regard winter as having appeared, it's when you can see the three stars in Orion's belt. Then those are constellations, will know what Orion's belt is. It's instantly recognisable, and you'll no doubt have seen it, although you might not know that it's Orion's belt, but it's three stars that basically are relatively close to each other, and they form a straight line. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I see Orion's belt, I think ah, it's winter. Um, that's, <laughs> the time, that's the time you see it. Um, the other things that, that we get to see, you, you just get longer to see things. Um, yeah. you, you can start your observing earlier um, and uh, do it for longer periods. Some of the things that you see in the winter, um, uh, well, Orion's an example. You'll see uh, Sirius as well, which is the brightest actual star um, that's okay. not a planet. And the three stars in Orion's belt point at Sirius, um, and Sirius is, is quite bright. Um, in the planets this year, this winter, are only very good for observations because they're all just in the wrong place, unfortunately. Um, but it's not like that every winter; it, it, it varies. One of the things I'm looking forward to is in the middle of December. I think it's the 13th and 14th of December. There's uh, one of the regular meteor showers that we get. Um, yeah. This one's called the Geminids, and it's called the Geminids because it appears to uh, to come from the constellation Gemini comes from that direction. Um, basically, when that's going on, people think of meteor showers are going to look up and see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. You yeah. don't. But the truth of it is, if you just lie down and look up at the sky for a couple of minutes, you're almost certainly going to see a shooting star. Um, and when you've seen one, it doesn't even make it boring when you see the second. They, they don't make it <laughs> like exciting. Um, they're just something to see. They're a wee bit like uh, what we was talking about earlier, and they're usually the remnants of comic tales. Um, that, that, that we're passing through um, and they're usually very tiny and they burn up in the atmosphere but you do get sometimes ones that split up um, in the atmosphere or ones that burn a slightly different colour you even occasionally get ones that make a bang um, they're very rare um, I'm, I'm probably happy that they're very rare <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really quite looking forward to that the the other thing but the um, looking at the night sky is the moon the moon itself um, is a source of fascination um for everybody, I'm sure everybody's at some time looked up at the moon and went, wow, look at that. Um, yeah. The full moon, I've got the date um, written down, it's the 19th of December is the full moon, but what people tend not to recognise is if you're one, if, if Santa brings a, a telescope, you don't want to look at the full moon through your telescope because what you just get is the moon reflecting light straight, almost straight back at you. What you want is the, the, the half moon, technically it's called the quarter moon, but what you get then is the shadows created by the the craters and the mountains being uh-huh. cast in the moon and it, and it makes it look much more three-dimensional and makes it a, a, um, much more interesting. So if uh, Santa's been nice in bringing a telescope, don't look at the full moon, look at the half moon because it's just more interesting to see. The full moon's interesting as well. Uh-huh. It's better to see it that way. There's a top tip for anyone who may be picking up a telescope for Christmas uh-huh. this year. There you go. You can, you can, also, you can also see the, the, the moon through binoculars um, quite well. Uh, and binoculars are, uh, people often say is, 
what should I get for the first telescope? And the answer generally is, don't get a first telescope, get a pair of binoculars. A, they're cheaper, B, if you decide you're no interested, you can use them for something else. Yeah. Uh, and the the thing about it is you can look at quite a lot of things and see them, you just see them better, because what the binoculars are for. There's a group of stars called the Pleiades, and the Pleiades is actually, it is literally a, a genuine group of stars, and they're all relatively young stars, but they're very hot, which is why they're blue. And if you look at them with the naked eye, you probably would see, on a good night, you'll see seven or eight or nine. If you look at them with a pair of binoculars, you'll see 20 or 30 or 40. If you look at them with a good telescope, you'll see hundreds, because there's hundreds of them. Wow. Um, and that's kind of the differences. But it, 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 even as a naked eye object, on a clear night, the Pleiades are quite fascinating because you can see the stars within, they look wispy um, yeah. because they're within the clouds. The other thing you can see uh, with a naked eye, the furthest naked eye object on a very clear night, if you know where to look, is the Andromeda galaxy. It's 200 million light years away um, and it's a galaxy quite similar to ours um, and it's apparently moving towards us, although some people dispute that and maybe we <laughs> Um, but it's hard to go out there and check. But the light came from that 200 million years ago, and um, before um, um, before there were even dinosaurs. Yeah. So they're um, they're just fascinating things to see. But bear in mind, you don't need a telescope to be, do astronomy. Start with the naked eye and a wee map that says this is how you find the stars you're looking for. Fantastic. So that's where I would begin. So, um, but look out for the Geminids. Look out for the moon. The moon's always always fun and fascinating. I will add that if you do get a telescope or binoculars, never, ever, ever, ever look at the sun directly through them because it will mm-hmm. pay damage your eyesight and yeah. you don't want that. That's a, that's a big no-no, even I know that one. <laughs> good, good. Uh, well, have you got anything that you're looking forward to seeing this winter in the skies? Yeah. Well, so if um, from, from Airdrie, if you get into a, a, an area where you can see the horizon, and if you look south, um, just after sunset, um, next week and the week after, you'll probably be able to pick up Venus very low uh, in the sky just after sunset. Um, so where you see the sun setting, it will be, um, if you're looking at the sun setting, it would be slightly around to the left uh, of that. Uh, you see, should, should see a bright star near the horizon, and that will be Venus. And then if you go up from that about 45 degrees, 30 degrees angle, you come to Saturn. And then if you go up a wee bit further, you'll come to Jupiter. So you should see, if you look in that general direction after sunset, south, southwest, um, quite, they're, they're, both of them are quite low in the sky at the moment. Um, Venus, uh, Jupiter's quite high, but there are, there are three bright uh, objects in the sky and there's not much at that time just after sunset but half an hour after sunset there's not a lot of stars that, that, that are out at that time yeah. uh, you will see those those will stand out um, and that's one we get most questions asked about is Venus it's quite low now um, so it's not as bright as it would be normally um, but it's the third, third brightest um, object in the sky usually uh, so that's quite you'll notice if you look at them, you'll notice that they don't twinkle, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what that's what gives them away from from a normal um, uh, star, um, because they're not actually points of light. They're actually uh, they've actually got a, a, an area. Uh, if you look through a pair of binoculars, you should be able to see the disk of Jupiter, 
uh, and might catch the phases of Venus. Uh, you might see it as a crescent because it's obviously nearer the sun than us. And uh, Jupiter, uh, Saturn, you might, uh, through a pair of binoculars, you might see that it's not quite round. You might see the, the sort of rings sticking out the side. Yeah. Uh, but a telescope will show all these quite clearly, and you'll see the moons of of, of Jupiter, even if you've got a small a small telescope. Uh, so that that's they won't be around uh, much longer um, as we head into winter. Uh, Venus will set earlier and earlier, and probably in the next two or three weeks, uh, it'll, it'll disappear below the horizon, and then Saturn will follow it, and then Jupiter. Um, but for the next three or four weeks, uh, you should be able to pick them up uh, catch them. in the south, uh, weather permitting, obviously. Uh, yeah. So half an hour or so after sunset, if you go, if you go out and have a look, uh, you should you should see them. Um, so that, they are quite interesting to to have a look at, even with the naked eye, especially when they're so close and you you see them in the field of view. They, they do look quite. Uh, quite impressive and it's uh, uh i was out in the park the, the other day there and there was a family and uh they were a bit in front in front of me and i i noticed uh, uh the teenager teenage daughter she was uh she looked up and she started pointing because <laughs> the three of them were quite quite you know quite quite clear and um uh, she was obviously uh, asking her parents what they were i don't know whether they answered them right enough they were too far <laughs> on but uh, for me to catch up um but uh, uh, yeah, so so people are uh, when you when you look up, it is it's it's quite interesting. Um, certainly get out, uh, try and get away from streetlights. That's a, another thing. So the 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 things that um, uh, Richard were mentioning there, uh, the darker the sky, um, the more you'll see. Uh, yeah. And the, the Andromeda galaxy is, if you get a dark enough sky, uh, and you get your eyes adjusted to the dark. Um, then it can look quite uh, quite spectacular. You can notice this uh, fuzz, uh, and, and once it's pointed out to you, uh, you go, "Oh yeah, yeah, I see that, I see that." So that's that's quite interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, when when you do get to kind of see kind of the stars in the sky and things like that, it can be quite spectacular to see you just like from the naked eye and. And kind of, it would be fantastic to see them a bit closer up. And, and if that teenage girl that you saw in the park happens to be listening, there you go. You've got an explanation for it if, <laughs> your, if your mum and dad couldn't tell you what it was. So hopefully that explains it. Hey, a, wee thing, a wee thing about Venus just before you move on, and it's it won't happen, it isn't happening now, but it's sometimes it's bright enough that you can see it during the day. All right. Um, and it just appears it's a tiny, it appears a tiny wee white dot in whichever part of the sky it needs to be at. Um because I remember once when I was at school that happened. Venus was very bright, and the police were getting phone calls about there's weird flying objects and all that as well, yeah. and, and things like that. But this particular day, I was in physics as it happened, and I looked out the window and because it was, wasn't very interesting, and thought, "What's that?" And I realised it was Venus, and I get into trouble with the teacher. Going, what are you staring at? Is Venus? It can be Venus. Can I see Venus in daylight? Yes, you can. And the whole class is, "Oh, I can't see it. It's just there." And it must be. A, it's not moving. So it's not an aeroplane. So yeah. it occasionally does do that. Um, this unfortunately isn't one of those times. But Venus is uh, fascinating as well for a whole set of other reasons. Fantastic. So the next thing that I thought we would touch on a little bit was that there has been recently quite a lot of uh, solar storms in the sky, which has led to the auroras in the, in, in the sky as well, um, which has been visible from Scotland, hasn't it? Uh, well, um, it would have been visible from Scotland. <laughs> 
it would have been visible from Scotland if you could get rid of the clouds. Um, yeah. Scotland is always the clouds, as Williams several times said, weather permitting. Um, we're, um, in the process of um, entering into what's called the solar maximum, the, okay. the sun goes through cycles approximately 11 years long, where the number of sunspots and the activity on the surface um, uh, increases and decreases. So it's been very quiet for the last wee while, um, and it's now um, probably about a year or so into the uh, the next solar maximum. So the, the, there have been more sunspots. There are more um, things to see going on round about the sun. Um, but what we got in uh, October was something just a wee bit special. What, what, we, what we saw were uh, two things. Um, there were some solar flares. Now, solar flares are um, radiation. They're gamma rays and X-rays. Um, and they travel, as gamma rays and X-rays do, they travel at the speed of light, so they arrive uh, on the Earth about eight minutes, eight and a half minutes after they leave the sun. Um, they're not dangerous to the people on the surface because the atmosphere screens them out, but they are dangerous to people on the space station or if we ever have them uh, on the moon um, or just up in space where they don't have the, the atmosphere to protect them. Um, but solar flares are sometimes accompanied by something called a coronal mass ejection, not a very easy name, doesn't it exactly roll <laughs> off the tongue? So we call them a CME, and a CME is a, a, a mass of billions of tons of charged particles, uh, protons and electrons, and they don't travel at the speed of light, so they take two or three days to arrive here, um, but they uh, they pose a serious risk to electronics, um, particularly mm -hmm. up in space where there's no atmosphere uh, to stop them, um, or more exactly, the um, magnetic field um, protects us from them, but... Um, they can fry your computer, um, and you might not realise this, but they can fry the computer that starts your car, because when you turn the ignition in your car, it doesn't actually yeah. tell the engine, tells the computer to tell the engine. Yeah. So a, a very serious one could, could cause really very major problems for us. There was an event, um, I think in the 1980s, where a large part of uh, Canada was blacked out um, by a solar storm. Um, because the the electricity um, infrastructure was basically fried for several days, um, because the um, because this happened. But the the nice thing we get to see is the aurora, if the weather lets you. Uh, <laughs> what the aurora is the uh, is essentially these charged particles. They are um, caused by the magnetic field to um, divert to the poles. Uh, the north and south pole so there's the aurora borealis in the north and the aurora australis in, in the south and these charged particles um, then collide with oxygen and nitrogen atoms in the atmosphere the, the upper atmosphere and that causes the these atoms to emit light and um, the main color is green and that's when they, uh, um, they react with the oxygen and um, there's also red and blues and sometimes purples and uh, other colours as well. I've never seen an aurora, and it's very firmly on my bucket list. Um, yeah. And and hopefully my wife will listen to this, and maybe that's what I'm going to get for a present in some birth in the future. But um, the aspect that you see, um, you you maybe be familiar with the song "The Northern Lights" of Old Aberdeen. Um, that basically is, is a story of somebody's able to tell you about the time they saw the Northern Lights at Aberdeen. Um, it does happen. It isn't very common. Um, this time, the northern lights were apparently visible at latitudes as far south as Stirling, um, and maybe even further south, but unfortunately the weather was just, well, grey, um, <laughs> as it usually is. Um, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, um, they're very interesting uh, auroras, 
Um, and now that we know what causes them, uh, um, it kind of makes my head spin just a wee bit that this is going on over there and it's causing this to happen over here. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I think most people have probably seen it at least on like kind of t- TV or, or video footage or whatever, and it is very spectacular to see. And and I, th- I think to kind of see that in person would be um, just a kind of even more special again. And 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 it's just a kind of na- one of those natural phenomenons that that kind of kind of blows your mind a little bit how how kind of fa- fascinating it can be. So um, we sh- should definitely kind of. Watch out for them. Hopefully, happening at some point again in the future. Whenever we get a clear sky, maybe if we're very, very lucky. So you never know. You never know. Right, guys. This is a, usually a book podcast, so I'm not going to let you guys escape without talking a little bit about books as well. Um, and so, as much as it's fun about talking about our very historic um, observatory, let's see what you guys have been reading as well. And feel free to talk about books as well that are. Uh, astronomy related to as well because those are books too if, if it happens to be or if it is any kind of normal fiction books or whatever feel free to talk about them so William what ha- what pages have you been turning recently? Well I've uh, uh, because of my interest in, in the asteroids and the meteorites um, uh, I read a book um, which was just released uh, called Meteorite and it was written by uh, a guy called Tim Gregory and uh, it's an it's an excellent book. He's a he's a science communicator. I think he's actually a chemist um, by uh, by profession, and he works. Uh, I think he works down in the nuclear reactor down in uh, down at uh, Sellafield. Okay. Um, so um, he, he's been on uh, a number of uh, programs, uh, you know, as a science communicator, and he's written the book uh, about meteorites. Um, and as I mentioned before, these come f- mostly from asteroids. Uh, we, we, we get the ones from the comments. Um, but his book also extends into um, why we do science and the benefits that come out of doing pure science, you know, uh, things that people might not necessarily think um, of being useful for humanity. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't result in a in a new phone or something like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's got a lot of examples of where uh, pure science led to quite remarkable uh, finds, um, all in relation to um, scientists studying meteorites and asteroids and trying to find out more about them and analysing them. Um, and it's, it's certainly, I, I would recommend it, and it's not a, a scientific read. Um, uh, anyone would be able to understand it. And I certainly learned uh, learned a few things from it. Um, one, of the, one of the questions, I'll, I'll not tell you the answer to it, but um, <laughs> if you actually think about um, how do they know how old things are in the solar system. It yeah. explains that very well. And if you think about that, uh, how do we know how old the, the solar system is? And how bits, when you hear, well, the moon is X billion years old and Mars is Y billion years old. How do they know that? Uh, and it explains it all uh, yeah. very well. Um, so that, that's one to to, to have uh, a wee look at um, if you're wanting to, to broaden your uh, your understanding of that, um, and one of the other ones I'm listening to uh, was reading. Uh, um, it's a very geeky book, um, but the, <laughs> there's a lot of people 
um, that write about the space missions, uh, right. and I'm uh, I'm reading one about the engineering of the Mars Curiosity rover, and uh, it's by Emily Lackdawalla, uh, an American uh, author. Uh, she worked for the Planetary Society for a while, and uh, um, she's done a lot of um, uh, books for education as well. But it's more of a geeky book, and it goes into the the actual engineering of the the Mars rover and everything that went into that. Uh, not not for not for a light read, but uh, certainly very interesting. Uh, and uh, I think there's a wee bit of the politics in it as well as to how these missions got off the ground and funded and things like that. So it's all quite interesting yeah. uh, to see that. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Fantastic. And what about yourself, Richard? Well, I've got a, a couple of books as well. The the first of them is a book called 16 Million Degrees by Professor Lucy Green. Now, Professor Lucy Green is a professional astronomer. She occasionally appears on programmes like The Sky at Night and, and Horizon. And yeah. her area of speciality is the sun. And the, the, the title, 16 Million Degrees, refers to the temperature at the centre of the sun. Okay. Um, I've got to say, this is this is one of these books where I thought, I don't know if I'll like this, but... Um, I turned about three pages, but I thought, yeah, this is good. Um, and it it it's not a it's not a difficult read. She's actually quite good uh, at communicating the science. Yeah. Um, I must say, incidentally, I find it fascinating with science communicators, but we never have arts communicators. Must be a reason for that. <laughs> um, but anyway, she she basically tells the, the the story about how the sun does what it does from the centre out, and um, right. describes things that are not um, visible. Um, but, they're, but they are obvious to people with the correct equipment to do, uh, and how the sun has its various layers and what the various layers do and how they interact. The most stunning fact I got from it was that a photon that's created in the centre of the sun that's travelling at the speed of light takes 180,000 years to leave the sun um, oh. because it's so dense, it's just interacting with things all the time before it can actually leave. The average, the average time is 180,000 years. And she also mentions a US um, alternative rock band called They Might Be Giants. Don't know if you ever heard about them, but they they had a they recorded a song called um, Why the Sun Shines, um, and it said the sun is a ball, um, um, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas. And people went, that's no, that's not correct. And they, they <laughs> said, okay, sorry, tells is correct then so they re-recorded a version called how the sun really shines and the words are the sun is a <laughs> of incandescent plasma so that's that's much more accurate but suggested to me that scientists aren't really geeks um, if they're listening they, they might be giants so that was the first book i, I strongly <laughs> recommend that one um, i've got a hard copy somewhere that i think i took on holiday with me it was probably in, in the loft in the suitcase um, and it was so interesting i, I got um, a kindle version um, and read that. So it's one of the few books I've read twice. The second book is the Co the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, it's called. And this is by two um, Australian astronomers called Luke A. Barnes and Grant F. Lewis. And the Cosmic Astronomy, uh, the Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook is basically a challenge to anybody who says Big Bang can be right. Um, because what the book does, it explains why the um, astronomy world thinks the Big Bang is probably a, an excellent explanation although not necessarily a perfect one. Um, they challenge all the alternative theories and tell you why they can't work, how they don't match observation. Um, right. And they even tell us ways in which the Big Bang theory might be wrong. 
for instance, there's something called the lithium problem. I didn't know there was a lithium problem, but there's a lithium <laughs> problem. Uh, and they described it and, and why that's not been solved. So even uh, even for people who uh, are um, not convinced by the Big Bang Theory, um, it gives them an opportunity to say, well, I've got a better idea. So if they have a better idea, here are the things that you need to overcome in order to make your idea acceptable. That's really the basis of the book. Um, but again, it's not a difficult read. It does get a wee bit technical sometimes because of the nature of the subject, but they avoid, uh, I'm glad to say, mathematical um, aspects because that always throws me off. Maths just makes me bored. Um, yeah. It's not that I can't do maths. I just go, oh, that's maths. <laughs> keep it away, keep it away. <laughs> Uh, but they're both um, um, they're both quite good authors. They've, they've told a very interesting and convincing story, um, and they do take into account um, the, the alternatives that other people might seriously propose. Um, they don't go with the um, the world as a uh, uh, as a disc supported by elephants standing on a big giant turtle. Um, that's the kind of thing they can't do. So. Um, <laughs> The, you need to be scientific, but if if you want to try to shoot down the Big Bang Theory, go to that book. Fantastic. That's some fantastic, really good uh, recommendations there for some scientific books. And thank you very much, guys. That's the end of my questions, really, for you guys. So it's been really great insight into astronomy and getting some background into some of the kind of like big things that are happening in the science world and and your kind of experience of using the observatory as well so thank you very much for that guys um just before we finish up um i'll give you a little bit of a rundown on some of the things that are happening with the library service in the near future and the big thing that's really coming up for us is winterfest which i actually i think you guys are kind of involved in i I think you guys are coming along to winterfest yeah we're, we're, we're turning up um with uh, we'll, we'll refer to it as a stall, but I'm not, not sure that's quite the right word. Um, <laughs> partly depending on the weather, and um, we're hoping that we'll have some things to show people. Um, oh. But the, the 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 point about it is the the, uh, the last time we did anything like that, um, when I attended, the number of people who came and said, "I didn't know there was an observatory in Airdrie," is yeah. just astonishing. Um, yeah. so, um, so we'll be there on the fourth. Fantastic. So yeah, it's, so on Saturday the fourth of December, it's going to be at Summer Lee, and the library service have arranged various activities to go on at the museum. Um, there will be a couple of authors appearing: David McPhail, a children's author, and a local author called David McClure. And also, if you like dogs, there are also going to be therapists there as well, which you can come along and see the, the lovely therapists of dogs as well. And of course, the lovely guys from the Airdrie um, Astro- Astronomical Association as well, amongst loads of various other things. Because it is at Summerlee, you do need to book a ticket to either go to Summerlee or to book for one of the bookable events as well to get access. So you can do that on the website and you can find all the information about it at www.culturenl.co.uk slash winterfest. So you'll find out everything there that you need to know to get into the, the museum. And that's pretty much all for now, guys. For us, if you have enjoyed this podcast, do leave us some feedback on our hashtag, hashtag FLB podcast or by dropping us a little email at librarypodcast at northland.co.uk and we'll be back again soon for another episode. So thank you for listening. Bye, guys.